This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Pato Award with a strong run up a turn number two down the back straightaway. Absolutely fearless. Pato Award uses that outside line. He rockets around Will Power out of turn number two. Pato Award, new race leader. Joseph Newgarden has the fans on their feet. He's looking to the high side of, of the next victim in front of him. That's his teammate, Will Power. Tucks in behind him. Now he'll look to the bottom side into turn number three. He'll pass Will Power like he's standing still. Joseph Newgarden into the second position. Now he'll set his sights on Pato Award out of turn number four. Award the advantage about two car lengths. He'll hold them off Mark into turn one. He goes to the high side. Joseph Newgarden. We've seen his car work and Nick Yeoman. What a strong movement in turn number one by Joseph Newgarden. It's like he's playing a different sport out there. Joseph Newgarden has rocketed his way to the race lead over Pato Award. Nick Yeoman, let's take a look at uh, where he's going to cycle back in as he gets ready to come off of pit road and head for turn number two. Scott McLaughlin is making his way into turn number one. This is going to be awful tight. Mark Newgarden trying to blend his way back onto the racetrack. Here comes Scott McLaughlin. He's got the charge and he's going to pass Joseph Newgarden as they head into turn number three. They go nose to tail, but here comes Newgarden into turn number three. Joseph takes a look to the inside. They'll go wheel to wheel and into turn number three. The driver from Hendersonville, Tennessee will take over the race lead. Joseph Newgarden, new race leader as he rockets out of turn number four. David Malukas goes to the high side. Side by side between turns one and two. He's going to sweep around the outside and make that pass. David Malukas streaks around Scott McLaughlin. He's pedaling for everything he's got. He's got to make up about seven car lengths. Mark, can he catch Joseph Newgarden on the last lap? Scott McLaughlin is coming. David Malukas is coming. I don't think they're going to get him. A good strong run off of turn number four, but it's not enough. Joseph Newgarden with a strong finish. He goes to victory lane for the third straight year winning the Bomberito Automotive Group 500. David Malukas with his first career podium, a strong finish, finishes second. Tough at the end, almost, you know, felt like he was getting ripped away again, but, um, you know, we, we hung in there. We had a good final restart. You know, Scott wasn't easy to beat tonight. He was he was super fast, um, so you got to give it to him. Um, but I felt like, you know, we were in position there with that final stop, and this PPG car was just on rails tonight for sure. You know, we just needed to get in position, and we did that. Welcome to Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, the fan in Indianapolis. Highlights courtesy of IndyCar Radio from the Bomberito Automotive Group 500 on Saturday night. Thought it was going to get to Sunday morning from Worldwide Technology Raceway at Gateway Motorsports Park. Thanks for joining us, Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan. Josh Molinix is in our studios at the MS Communications Worldwide Headquarters. Thank you for being with us tonight. Open uh, Twitter lines, if you will, at Kevin Lee 23 At Kurt Cavan, if you got something for us tonight, we've got racing to talk about. We've got an off weekend coming up. There is uh, IMSA WeatherTech sports car action. I'll be at VIR coming up this weekend. The uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge Series on Saturday afternoon. That's the series Robbie Wickens is in on Peacock. And then make note of this, CNBC is where you can find us. I believe at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, as well as on Peacock for a GT race. It's a GTD Pro and GTD, so 18 cars in the WeatherTech Championship this weekend. We may touch on that later, but we had a lot of IndyCar stuff to talk about from this past weekend as well with uh, another short track win for Joseph Newgarden. It continues to master that element 
uh, of his program and a championship that is oh so tight. And before we get into all that, I'm um, and let's go ahead and roll the music, Josh. I'm wondering when the royalties are going to start rolling in because I have to believe right said Fred. Is that the name of the group? I looked it up today. They've got to be getting more downloads with all the exposure they're getting from young superstar American race car driver David Malukas singing their tunes during green flag racing. And this is one of those luck of the draw things. Uh, I thought I heard that in my scanner. It was either while I was on the air or I was getting ready to do something else. And I kind of made a mental note. So that's a little bit of a remix that I think Indy 44 might have done, or maybe he, maybe he found it. Somebody's done that on on the interwebs. So I hear this, and I look at my scanner, and that it, it, it says 18 on it. And say, okay, I don't have time to deal with that right now. There was something else going on I, I was chasing, and I kind of made a mental note that I'll ask Joe Berkmeyer, my, my pit assistant, who also is scanning radios and writes notes and things that he hears and helps, and uh, a couple of minutes later, Joe hands me a note. Malukas was singing <laughs> and and Joe was smart enough and sharp enough because I don't know that I would have caught the song. I could just tell he was singing and Joe caught the song, wrote it down and there and we almost didn't get it on. It was during a through the field where we were going to go just top seven championship contenders. And this is going Dylan Welch and I are going back and forth after I finished my last one for whoever was in sixth or something like that, and Dylan's talking, and I get on my intercom and I say, hey, if you want to do Malukas in eighth, I got a story on him. We want to go one more. And they said, sure, let's do it. So we went ahead and did Malukas. Then I think Dylan did one more driver as well. And then I just kind of put that in there as a throw in. And then we get the red flag, and David is the first to come to the rain room. And so I basically ask him, are you okay? Are you singing while you're driving? He explains, and that seems to have kind of taken off the last few days. So uh, again, I'm looking for, for our cut and I'm happy to share uh, a higher percentage with David because he's the star of this. So we'll get to that. Where do you want to start tonight, Kurt? Well, did you get the group right? Cause I think it was dead or alive was. Oh, dead was or alive. That's right. You're right. Yeah. I, yeah. I couldn't have named that at all. You're right. It yeah, is I mean, dead or alive. Cause I looked it up today on Spotify. If you're going to get the royalties, you got to know who to share them with. So uh, I, think I, that's... I feel it's not happening. <laughs> I feel that right said Fred or dead or alive. Neither one are going to share at this point. Yeah, probably not. But it it was uh, it was a good lighthearted moment in the in the middle of a, a race, and certainly it made more fun during the rain delay to listen to him try to explain it. And and uh, I talked to Pancho Carter on Monday. That's his spotter, and apparently Pancho he didn't think it was quite as funny as as maybe some did. He, I don't imagine he did. <laughs> Pancho's response, did. yeah, Pancho's response was more on the lines of. If you're sing singing, you must be bored. Get up on the wheel and drive this thing. <laughs> and uh, maybe I left out a couple of words. That's what David that, said. Yeah, yeah, that's what David said he was told. But wait, well, I'm fuel saving. Make up your mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, David didn't clarify, at least on air, where that was, where that instruction came from. But I thought 
this has Poncho written all over it. So I called Poncho. I, I believe yeah. there's a story. Uh, actually, I don't think it's posted yet on IndyCar.com, but it will be soon. But uh, just just Poncho and their relationship, uh, his relationship with David is is really a you know an interesting one. Uh, you know, do you forget how young Dave David is and and getting grape juice in Victory Lane and and uh, well in in the podium celebration, I should say, it wasn't his Victory Lane, but. Uh, and the podium celebration to get grape juice. And then, you know, what do I do with the, the champagne that's being sprayed at me? Do I close my mouth? What do, you know, how do, how do I handle that? I'm not even 21 yet. Uh, and so good on IndyCar to kind of be prepared for that because, uh, you know, he's the only one, I think, isn't he? Yeah, he's the only one now that is under 21. So when you mm-hmm. got champagne involved, uh, I guess Lungard uh, was he, under he 21 just turned earlier. Turn yeah, earlier in the season. So good on IndyCar to be prepared for that. And he's still got two more races where he will still not be 21. I think his birthday is September 28th. So it'll be after the season. But, you know, it, it feels like, uh, based on our discussion already to start this show, and the fact that, uh, you know, just the overall chatter on social media, it kind of feels like David Malukas won the race. I mean, if if you if you just there were two winners, yeah. Yeah. So good on David. Uh, You know, I guess I guess the thing we got to start with though is the championship as a whole. You know, it's we're right we're right clearly in the thick of it, and yet there's probably what uh, four guys. Uh, yeah. Let me look again. Do I do I still have five? What? How, well, how far is fifth out? Uh, fourth is is uh, or fifth is forty three points. Now he's he's mathematically in it, but he's going to need to be closer than that. If he, you know, to power and and Newgarden in particular, if they're the if one of those is the uh, series leader, you know, you could gain forty eight points in a race weekend, forty nine, but Newgarden's going to have the tiebreaker with most wins. And so you need to be within 48 if Newgarden is the points leader or the eventual guy, you know, that you're chasing. And, you know, you realistically probably need to be with this many drivers involved. You know, when you head to the last race of the season, you're going to need to be within about 25 at max. I think that's going to be your kind of your sweet spot. That way, if you win the race and the guys you're chasing don't finish in the top three or four, uh, then you've got a chance to steal the title. So I think 25 kind of feels like the right number that you want to be. Uh, ideally, you could probably pull it off if you were if you were second and you were 35 points out. You could pull it off, but if you're fourth and you know 35 points is probably mm-hmm. not going to happen for you. Uh, so you know that's kind of the cutoff in my mind. So I think there are four drivers still in legitimate championship contention. Uh, Power, Newgarden being three points in arrears, uh, Scott Dixon, uh, who's 14 points out and Marcus Erickson, who's 17 points out. Then it starts getting a little dicey, 43 points back for for Alex Pillow, and then another 11 points back for, for, uh, for McLaughlin and even more for Pato award. So feels like to me, it's power, new garden, Dixon and Erickson for the championship barring, you know, a big swing for, uh, for for Alex Pillow at at Portland, which he did win last year, so it could happen. I think four is right, and, and even beyond the four that are still realistically involved, I would almost say it's 
pretty close to a toss-up with four. To you don't quote control your destiny if you're Marcus Erickson or Scott Dixon, but you know I think if either one of those drivers won the next race, they'd feel pretty good about themselves. You know they're sure. going to be then within at least what 13, 14 points um, well, better but- than that actually. Uh, even if Will Power finishes second in the race. So, you know, I, I would say it's almost a toss-up. Who does the best, unless the other guy, unless Power is, or Newgarden, are one spot below you, then I think it's there. And I give Pelot a little bit more of a chance because of what he did last year at Portland, also because Ganassi is going to test at Laguna Seca. So I think that adds something to it. Penske is going to test at Portland. Ganassi is going to test at Laguna Seca. So we have differing strategies already in in that. And there was a story on racer.com today, uh, you know, based on, hey, Ganassi was already really good at Portland. So we're going to skip that when we feel like we need a little bit more help on the low grip tracks like Laguna Seca. And it's probably even a worse grip. They're going to repave it after this year, right? So it, it's yeah. obviously really bad. And Penske feels like, yeah, we could probably use some help on the high grip tracks. We weren't great at Barber this year, so we're going to head to Portland. I like that strategy. I also like the way the strategy, even if you weren't sure which one to go to and didn't have a philosophy or a, a big need, I'd rather get the win. If I could only win one of the two races, I want it to be Portland. I want to either build my lead or get to the lead and put some more pressure on everyone else at a place where it's difficult to pass and it might come down to a qualifying situation. But but back to where Pelot, McLaughlin and Award, those are somewhat long shots. You're talking more than a race difference there. The only way Pelot is in it is one of those four, maybe two. But if one or two of them finish at the back at Portland, and then all of a sudden you're only looking at two or three with a 30, 35-point lead on you, then that becomes a little more realistic. And, you know, as we've talked about before, what's the number? 49 points is the difference that can be gained going into the last race. So if you're within 49 you're going to be mathematically alive with 26 cars, 25, 26 cars in that range. So if you're within 43, yes, highly unlikely that those three ahead of you are going to finish 23rd, 24th, 25th. But there's not a whole lot more scored for 18th. So, it, again, it depends on that number. If it's still four ahead of you uh, by – double digit points yeah that's that's not going to happen but if somehow it's down to two because two have a rough spot this weekend maybe that's the case but you know what whatever two to go four right there in it i think we'd all take that when the season started yeah it's uh it's going to be at least two because power and Newgarden ought to be close to one another and you would think with Dixon and Erickson all within basically a couple positions on the racetrack that you know one or two of those that I think we're going to have three going to the last race that are legitimate Mm -hmm. chances to win the championship. You know, the other thing I thought about that initially that I thought about would 
would favor Ganassi. And I, by the way, I'm with you. I, I would go to Portland and test, even if I was good last year, to you know close the gap, put the pressure on. But you know, basically, the Ganassi guys ran one two last year, and they got there uh, in a in a strange way. They they were basically sent to the back after the first. Uh, lap because Polo and Dixon were off course. And so they battled back essentially from the back of the pack last year to, to, to the front. So they obviously have good cars and good strategy. It's so, it's so forth, but it did work out well for them. Anyway, I would choose to go to Portland as well, but more cars are going to Laguna. In fact, two thirds of the field uh, is going to, to Laguna to test. The only ones going with, with team Penske to Portland is the Andretti bunch. And so there are at least enough cars, you know, there will be, you know, like six, seven cars at, uh, at Portland. You know, you always want to have a measuring stick. You got to know whether you're, you're in the game or you're, you're, you know, how, how do you size up your, your performance uh, if you don't have other cars there? And so, you know, at least Team Penske's got Andretti with them to test, and that test is Friday this week, and then the Laguna Seca test is next Monday. So we're by the time we do this show next week, we ought to have, you know, if you don't have Team Penske and, and Chip Ganassi racing at the top of their respective test, then I think, you know, barring, barring not having them at the top of their test, I think we're going to have a pretty good, you know, have some clarity to where this goes, hopefully going into those last two races but these are wild card races portland especially that first turn is troublesome so testing or no testing you know it may be in the hands of just fate of how you come out of that first turn yeah that's the other reason like we talked about last week why you still feel like even those that are you know especially below at 43 back maybe there's a chance because you almost feel like it's a Daytona or Talladega with some luck involved. And we saw you can be caught up in that and still do well, like the Ganassis did last year. But there have been an awful lot of cars damaged in the last few years through the, the festival chicane there. Uh, so that is a, a dynamic involved. Here's the other thing that I don't know which one is better, but I don't know how many times I've heard drivers, engineers, teams say after a test, it's nothing at all like it was for the test even if the temperatures were similar, that the track is just so much different. We feel like we learned nothing and that just put us in the wrong direction and we're way behind. My guess is Laguna Seca is more likely to be that track where, you know, the amount of sand that's on the track in one particular day that blows through. I don't know. But, but if there is one of those that is more likely that like that, because it seems like there are a couple, three tracks on the schedule that I always hear yeah, we tested there and it went great and it was nothing like it at all. And we feel like it was just a waste of time. In reality, it's never a waste of time because you're still learning something out of that. But that plays into things. Here's another thought I had from um, Saturday night. Uh, so, so in qualifying, we had the top seven in the championship, the top seven to start the race. And at one point, well, when we started through the field, I looked up before we did that and I looked at it and it's the same thing. Not in that order. But the top seven in the championship were the top seven in the race. And, oh, my goodness, have we reached the last NASCAR race of the season where uh, miraculously every year the top four in the NASCAR playoffs are running one, two, three, four in that last cup race of the year. How has that made its way to IndyCar? You know, in reality, it's these seven have been the best all year long. So 
you know, maybe in an oval brings that out a little easier uh, as well. Yeah, on the oval, you, you know, in this case, you've got an inverted uh, qualifying field. So, you know, True. the track conditions continue to improve and those that go last are going to have the best chance to capitalize on that rubber. Well, they went by points. So, you know, you had yep. the back seven were the championship seven. That won't be the case at these two road course races where you must emerge from three sessions of qualifying to, to reach the top six. Uh, so far, you know, far, far, far more unlikely that um, that you would have that scenario play out at either one of these two races. I think getting back to this, the discussion real quick, last point on which car, which test I would take. Again, the other reason to take Portland in my mind is that you might learn something that helps you at both tracks, or maybe yes. you uncover something and, and the benefit applies. Uh, these aren't the same racetracks, but the, you know, there are, they're both road courses, both permanent road courses. And so I think there's a, there's at least that variable that could come into play. Uh, but, you know, you hear rookies will say a lot. I'm glad I tested there. Uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson talked about it when he went to uh, Iowa, how much that helped him. The guys we're talking about, they don't need to go back to Portland or Laguna Seca to get up to speed in, in one practice session. So uh, these guys are, are the best of the best at, at this at this business, and, and I expect all of them to be pretty close now, whether or not they all advance to the Firestone Fast 6 is another thing, but uh, but it's going to be a fascinating – I like this time of the year uh, even more so than the last race of the year because now we're starting to get some clarity and you got more guys involved, so who does this and what. You know, the penultimate race of the season, you know, typically has more drivers still in contention, so there are more variables, more things to kind of look at. When you get to the last race, it's usually kind of mano a mano, and, and we'll see how they end up. But this is a fun time for me. It's it's the next to the last race, and it's a West Coast swing, meaning you just pack up. Let's It's like a camping trip. Let's go, let's go camp and figure out who's the best. And when you think about qualifying, these are two relatively short tracks, small tracks, so it is very likely one of these championship contenders is not going to get through a Q1 because they felt like they were impeded or they get called for impeding someone. Sometimes it's, it's really difficult to stay out of somebody's way. And I understand the challenge for race control, but it does feel somewhat random. But going by the book, it is impeding. But so you just have, in, in many ways, it's, I think it's better to just be on the same strategy leaving at the same time as everyone else because it's when you leave later on your outlap, you might run the risk of impeding someone as you then try to gap and so forth. So the point I'm trying to make is I think the chances are high that one of these, especially if you take it all the way to the seven, is impacted by something they feel like is out of their control in round one of qualifying. And I, I've given this some more thought since we've talked about it because the drivers and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like the first on the scene. I'm, I'm the psychologist as they're out of the car because sometimes they even, haven't even talked to their engineers yet. And I get a lot of complaining about the format and why isn't uh, the clock stopped and so forth. And the, the thought I've even mentioned a couple of times in calmer situations with the drivers. Well, I remember, and some of them weren't around at the time, 10, 15 years ago, 
when there was more time on the clock. And I can't recall if I think there might have even been some guaranteed time allowed. But I know there was definitely at least two more minutes in the first round. And what we saw, Kurt, was what? At the beginning of the session. to the end. Yeah. Yeah, they just sat there. So that didn't do us any good. So if you guarantee time, they're just going to sit there because they don't want to use up their tires if they know that. So at some point, you have to put an end to it. And it does – it's it's not always going to be fair because of where you're at on the pit lane. Uh, sometimes being pit in can be advantageous. And we saw that at IMS at a certain circumstance. So you might get one last lap, lap than everybody else. And if it's only one lap, that's – but essentially it's you better make the most of your outlap on primaries – and you might even want to think about going if you want to go conservative on the Reds. Mostly it's just you got to make the best of it. If you're a top six contender, you're going to probably be quicker if you get it right on the blacks than one of those that normally qualifies 18th or worse that is willing to use two sets of Reds like we often see. Rookie drivers do that. People that just don't expect to advance. Uh, that run two sets of reds. You you could still potentially be faster than them if you get a clean lap in the first couple of laps. So just as you talked about the uh, the qualifying time allotment and guaranteed time, there is a new feature on IndyCar.com called Hey Jay, and it is Jay Fry answering questions uh, about certain hot topics, and one of those topics is that very topic. So uh, if you want to, it's a lengthy, we're not going to read it all. We may refer to it later in the show as we talk about subjects and how IndyCar addresses things. But if you go to IndyCar.com, in the news section, Hey Jay is a new feature, and it'll probably run a couple times a month as we see topics that Jay needs to address to the fan base. And uh, I thought it, uh, okay. it certainly addresses that, so be looking for that. Let's look for that. We'll talk about that and more. We need to talk about Joseph Newgarden. And already where this young fella, uh, he's still pretty young, stands in history. 25 IndyCar wins now, five on a season. McLaren assigned another driver. Not kidding. They have signed another driver. We will get into that and much more as we continue. Trackside 935 1075 The Fan. Hi, this is Justin Newgarden, and you're listening to Trackside. So let's talk more about the I think 31-year-old now from Nashville, Tennessee, or thereabouts, who is quickly moving up the all-time wins list. Kurt, let's just talk about this year. Uh, of the oval races this year, Joseph Newgarden, had he not had the issue at Iowa, he would have won all of them, right? Uh, other than the Indy 500. Outside of the Indy 500, he was going to sweep the all of the other ovals. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, although, you know, the omission is a big one. Uh, but It is. But, uh, you know, and he would have liked to have had a lot more points at Indy. He would have been even further up, up on the grid than, than he is. But, yeah, fifth win of the season. The last driver to win five in a season was Simon Pagino in 2016. Several guys have done it. Uh, Dixon has done it. Power has done it. 
uh, there's seems like there's another one. Uh, so it has been done five or more, but in history, there's not been a lot to uh, to win five. And you, as you say, he should have won Iowa. The second race at Iowa crashed in turn four while while having a commanding lead. And there's still two races to go. He hasn't won either of these races in his career, but the way he's been driving. Uh, he certainly would be uh, one of the top favorites. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, as you said, the, the oval dominance. But uh, he he sends when he gets in a zone, man, this guy is is as good as anybody, and and he really is in one now. So in this race, it almost got away from him, and he was uh, not in a super mood during the red flag because, and he's talked about his competitive nature, uh, that when the opportunity is there, he feels like they all need to take advantage of it. And in this case, didn't look like there was any, anything they could do about it. I mean, maybe there is, maybe, you know, then it's second guessing. We pit one lap earlier with McLaughlin and we don't have someone that is a lap down that maybe is going to be a little more conservative, especially a rookie getting down on the pit lane. But, Boy, I, I I think I'd love to say that everybody should be that smart and anticipate that, but I think that's pretty difficult to do when you're deciding when to stop. Sometimes it's just luck of the draw of who comes in with you. Yeah, I, let me let me quote what Joseph was thinking while you were asking him questions during uh, during the rain delay, <laughs> and and you ask him, you know, did you get held up? Uh, coming to pit road and what he really wanted to say is kevin you just asked one too many questions uh because i'm ready to be done with this interview and so he gave you a very very uh flip kind of answer of course it, of course i did or something to that effect uh yeah I, I i actually that was one of the few times when i was like oh kevin don't ask one more question because he's ready to walk away from you but he was should, should uh, i not have it, asked that question though maybe i should have no. started with that one and the whole interview would have been five seconds long <laughs> But we That's had right. two that... hours to fill. I get it. I, I was. Uh, it's a, I was it's just a fair think... question. And and it's... and by the way, it's in his uh, best interests to have that pointed out because he doesn't know whether that's even been caught by the broadcast. It, you know, it, it's very sometimes things like that happen that no one actually sees what happened, and they just say, "Oh, the pit crew had a slow pit stop, or you weren't on it enough on your in or out lap." Now, this is one that we did catch, and I think it's always good to get confirmation. Or, you know, maybe he says something else. Maybe there was something else that we missed, because that happens a lot of times, too, where those of us that think we're geniuses on the broadcast think we've figured something out, and then it's, oh, oh, something else happened. Okay, that's good to know. That's why well, we're here. That's why we asked. I appreciate, and I, I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was the that was the question to ask, and you probably asked them in the right order so that you got your short answer as he was signing off. But, you know, we both know the, the drivers pretty well, and when the shoulders start to turn <laughs> away from the guy asking the question, you knew the question was, was not going to be well received. He answered it, and I appreciate that he gave you just the right amount of information you, he confirmed, but I was just thinking on your behalf because I knew I knew he didn't want one more question. <laughs> he was done. Hey, it's part of the game. Um, and, and like Joseph said, he is fiercely competitive. And we have seen that more and more the last two or three years. When it doesn't go well, he does not hide it well. And and there are others like that, too. Will doesn't always hide it very well. 
and kind of comes and goes. Some of the others, you know, McLaughlin, I was told, was seething when he got out of the car. I don't know that, but I was told he looked really angry, and I got over to him even before we went on camera, and he was fine. You know, I think he had had a couple of minutes, and it was, yeah, I'm disappointed, and I'm not going to forget about this one, but... I finished third on another oval. It's it's going okay at this point. It's everybody handles things differently, and that's good. By the way, I'm fine if people show that they're ticked off. Agreed. Let's park just for a second. Why was why do you think McLaughlin was was uh, irritated? Because I'm not sure that he had a real right to be, unless I'm missing something. I thought those were just two very well executed passes on him. Well, I suspect he's thinking, all right, I now he was in a position to win this race on the last lap, but this is two ovals this year where he's given up a position for either first or second on the last lap. So that probably um, leads to some frustration. And I think also just the competitive part of it. I've had a good car. Uh, I've been up close. I'm tired of finishing close. I want to win one. I thought, I'll be honest, I thought the race was over. Uh, and I wasn't looking at the radar, but just kind of looking around and from what I was hearing. And Team Penske thought the race was over. We thought it was going to pour. And we didn't think they'd wait a whole long time. But it only rained for about five or ten minutes. So I think that's part of the emotion, too, is that McLaughlin – as he got out of the car, and we showed on camera Kyle Moyer's smile, and I don't know that Kyle thought the race is over or was certain it was over, but I think he thought there was a good chance that it was over. And those on the stand that are looking at the weather apps from the way things have been going, and it was difficult to tell because it wasn't like there was a big blob. There were just lots of little bitty spots that kept popping up. But the thing is, when you're talking oval racing, if those pop up every half hour or so, you're just not getting anywhere. So I think that all added into it as well. Um, and then as he gets out of the car and thinks about it is, okay, I didn't just give up the lead to anybody. I gave it up to the guy who's the best short track racer, who's won 25 races in whatever it is, eight or nine years. You know, it's, it's, it's not like anybody that isn't qualified beat me. Malukas is a little different story. Young guy, but his car was fantastic. And Newgarden gave him high praise as well about what he was able to do. So I, I just, I sense in this, again, that's what I was told. But I didn't see it when I got to him. So maybe I was told incorrectly. And it was maybe someone just guessing that he was going to be frustrated because another one got away from him. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I just didn't think there was any reason for him to be kind of upset with someone other than just the circumstances. You know, Malukas passed no, him on the outside. I don't think he was upset with anyone. Yeah, I don't yeah. I can't see him being upset with anyone, just upset. Well, I think Joseph when during the rain delay was upset not just with the circumstances. I think he was upset with someone and, you know, just the whole how it happened and how it was pretty magnified uh, by the fact that it looked like the race was going to end and he was going to be second in a race he should have won. So I think there was there was not only 
the disappointment in the moment, but there was the anger of which how it happened. Uh, so that's why I thought it was different with McLaughlin. And McLaughlin's just different in terms of his ability to to communicate and maybe he hadn't been around here long enough to, to for us to see some of those down moments. Uh, but he he responds really well, and I've been really impressed with how he answers questions, the way he handles adversity. Even last year, I thought there was a stretch where he could have been a little bit more, uh, you know, pouty, and I wouldn't have blamed him. But it he handled it really well, I thought, at least uh, on camera and in interviews, and you know, and with the reporters and so forth. But uh, maybe what you know, spend a little time on Malukas because well, let's get to keep the Joseph thing going just a little bit. You mentioned twenty five race wins. Can you believe that's already tied Gordon John Clock, and it's it's I within it. just shouting distance now of Johnny Rutherford and Rick Mears' total is just around the corner. I mean, this these are huge numbers for a driver. Uh, and I've got a story that will run later in the week that really dives deeper into this into this phenomenon. But he, he has been on a tear, unlike what we've seen. I mean, it's pretty comparable to um, – to really uh, powers pace is about the only one who has won more races in a shorter period of time in this generation of drivers. And so it's, it's been really impressive. And yet it kind of feels like Joseph has done it a little bit quieter uh, than maybe even will, will did or, or Dixon did or, or even Elio uh, it feels quieter in some respects, but I tell you, when that guy when that guy gets hot, like we were talking about, he's he's a ferocious competitor, and I I thought he would get McLaughlin put pretty quickly on that restart. I didn't know it'd be by turn three, basically about three quarters of a mile down the road from start finish, but uh, he had him easily by turn three and never looked back. I don't know if I have, I don't know how to pick a favorite. I think it's just. It would be like one of the ESPN talking head shows. We could name a name and pretend like our argument is stout and look up some statistics or in their case, have someone look them up for you and come up with something. But when you talk about the people involved, Power, New Garden, Dixon especially, um, you could maybe make, make an argument that it's a little harder to make the argument that Erickson is going to beat those guys because he's just not been in this situation before in IndyCar. And it's been a long time. You know, it's been before he got to F1 that he's been in this situation. Would still not surprise me to see Marcus Erickson win the championship. But between those three, as close as they are and with the teams they are with, I do not know how you pick a favorite. Well, I think if I was in Vegas going to the betting window, I would look at it this way. I, I think this would be my train of thought. Dixon hasn't qualified particularly well, and these are two tracks where that he hadn't qualified well this season. And these are yeah. a couple of tracks being short in, in duration that, that it's going to be – it wouldn't be a surprise if he qualifies the mo, the lowest of these title contenders. So I might I, – I'd – I'd couch that into the decision. I would look at Erickson and think the last, you know, eight, nine races have not been really strong for him. And he's only won the Indy 500. I know that's huge in the deal, but, but he's only won one and powers only won one. And, and yet somehow power has stayed atop the championship standings the last two or three weeks, three races actually in total, but he, he hasn't felt like the champion yet. Joseph is the one that feels like the champion. So I would give the edge to Joseph. 
with Dixon, who always seems to turn, you know, something average into something great. Uh, kind of my second pick. But again, how has power stayed on top of the standings for three straight races when he hasn't really been as convincing as you would like a champion to be? So I would go with I would go with Newgarden just because I feel like he's been the championship guy this season. Power has stayed consistent, stayed up front, and others have taken turns winning. No one has really gotten um, on a on a big heater at this point. All right, we'll get to news of the day coming up and plenty of other things, including your tweets on Trackside. Hi, this is David Malukas, and you're listening to Trackside. More David Malukas conversation coming up in a little bit. Before I forget, just saw Bob Pockris with a tweet um, that doesn't apply to IndyCar, but could moving forward. So NASCAR is on NBC, big NBC, coming up on Saturday night, from Daytona, and it's also preseason NFL football time, and sometimes the NBC affiliates are the homes for preseason games through local deals. So there are several markets where the NBC affiliate will not be airing the NASCAR race. Phoenix, Baltimore, Tampa, Orlando, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Harrisburg. So if you're in those markets... Peacock would be an option. And even if you don't have Peacock, anything that's on SportsWise on NBC is also on NBCSports.com, which is free. So you can access that. So keep that in mind if we ever have a situation like that where your local affiliate isn't carrying the, the IndyCar race that's on NBC. The final two races, Portland and Laguna Seca, will be on NBC. And, you know, especially for people on the West Coast, every once in a while they're running a paid infomercial in the morning <laughs> that causes you to miss some time. So there's the backup plan. Okay, it's time for our Speedrome Circle City Raceway News of the Day. Two great nights of family-friendly and exciting racing action this weekend here in Indy, of course, Saturday night at the Tom Wood Group Indianapolis Speedrome, powered by Lincoln Tech. The action stays hot as they get closer and closer to the World Figure 8 Championship. Three-hour endurance race in September, and this Saturday, it's a full night of stock car racing on the historic Fifth Mile Oval, capped off by the always exciting, wild, and unpredictable late-model Figure 8 Championship finale. Adult tickets are only $10 this Saturday night, and you can always get info at speedrome.com. Kurt, the news is... Well, it has to do with Andretti. And, you know, we've been talking about Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan building this 100,000-square-foot facility kind of northwest of the Speedway here in Indianapolis. It's actually in Zionsville and offering, you know, new jobs and, and uh, just a firmer presence uh, in the sport. Andretti Global, the parent company of Andretti Autosport, announced this week that it has chosen Fishers, which is northeast of Indianapolis, just on the other side of the Beltway, to a 575,000 square foot facility on 90 acres, and it'll add up to 500 jobs to the community by 2026. This is obviously tied to you know all their teams and and their efforts to to get a Formula One program. But this is a huge commitment, and Andretti could have made it in a lot of places. Obviously, the Indianapolis market makes the most sense, but they're committing not only to a race shop for all their endeavors. Also an amphitheater, a museum, an innovation center, and it'll showcase the Andretti legacy. So you're, what you're talking about is a destination for people uh, to go yeah. see the Andretti cars. Mario Andretti doesn't own a lot of cars of, that he drove. In fact, I think he only has his last car that he drove. But 
within the collection of Andretti Autosport is is some great cars uh, over the last two decades, and and this will be a great destination place for people coming into town. Yeah, so now you have that opportunity because I would guess Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan is planning the same. Hopefully, Errol McLaren SP is doing some of the same. Nathan Brown at the Indy Star tweeted kind of as a comparison because those other two projects are massive as well. Ray Hall's is said to cost around $20 million, uh, but this one, didn't, didn't you say it's about $100 million? $200 um, million. Two, so nearly six times the size, 10 times the money involved. So that tells you how big this is and doing it without any assurance of Formula One. But even if not, you know, you've, you're talking, I've lost count of how many racing series they have a footprint in. So there's plenty to be done, even if Formula One doesn't happen for Andretti Autosport. So good for us, good for IndyCar and motorsport in general as well. That's our news of the day. Only $10 for adult tickets gets you this Sunday's racing action over on Indy's Dirt Track, and that's Circle City Raceway at the Marion County Fairgrounds on Indy's southeast side. This Sunday, it's the return of the Jonathan Bird Sprint Cars Championship battle between Thomas Meserol and Scotty Weir. One point is all that separates the two drivers for the inaugural crown with only two races remaining. Circle City Raceway features family-friendly racing action, great food, free parking, and big fun, times and location and information is available at CircleCityRaceway.com. Hour 2 coming up, Trackside, 93.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. Hour number 2 from the MobileDriveHubler.com studios in Indianapolis, or close enough. Josh Molinix is in the MS Communications headquarters overlooking Monument Circle. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, at Kevin Lee 23, at Kurt Cavan. I'm going to run through some Twitter questions. We've got a lot to cover still, hour number two. Uh, John at J Major 7 shares this. I don't know if this is his comment or just something he saw. Maybe it was a comment on a podcast he saw. For a couple of people from the Brady Bunch, I think Greg and Peter says, last week I was listening to, of all things, a podcast with two actors from the Brady Bunch, Christopher Knight, which which is Kurt. Which one is he? Uh, uh, must be Peter. I'm going to guess Peter. Oh, I'm disappointed you don't know them all by name. <laughs> yes, it's Peter. I'd... Said that he and his family binge watch Drive to Survive on Netflix, and as a result... They now watch all the Formula One races. He notes that from the Olympics to horse racing to TV talent shows, without knowing who these people are, there's little interest. No question here. Just another example for whoever is keeping a list. I get it. And it's one of many, many examples we see. And, and you know, we see that and say, well, why doesn't IndyCar do that? And it might help. Um, but I don't know that it automatically does. I think what Formula One struck it and they were first. I think I just read a story last week or the week before about was it? I think it's MotoGP it has a similar show, and there was commentary from I think it was one of the rights holders, one of the network bosses of of one of the rights holders, and I'm not even sure which country it was. It might have been the UK version, and basically saying, "Yeah, that's done nothing. That that's you know been rubbish." Uh, so one. It has to be done the right way with the right people. And then, two, it just has to click. And, and it might help. And I, I'd love to see it 
be given a go because I think, especially this season, if you could have really gotten people to play ball and give you the access, which I'm not sure they would, but if you could get them to play along, oh, would this be fascinating? Especially if you separated at six months when, you know, maybe the legal situation is all settled at this point. But I think the challenge that everyone's facing is trying to do something slightly different that will resonate and not just appear like a copycat. And, you know, Formula One has always had something slightly different for some people that, and this works out perfectly since the races aren't, haven't been, they're actually better than they used to be, but haven't really been super entertaining. It's all of the drama. And this kind of show went perfect with that, but they just struck gold. It, it happened at the right time. And the first season didn't have a huge amount of traction. You know, I really think it kind of picked up big in the pandemic. That's when it took off and it coincided, as I've said many times before, with ESPN running races without commercials because of necessity. And it's, it's just been kind of the perfect storm with all of that. But we will keep our fingers crossed that we see some sort of contents coming along that can support IndyCar racing and, and entertain the fans. I just wanted to add a little, quick little story of, of something I heard the other day. I was with some people and, and a guy found out that, that I didn't know before the meeting. And he said, uh, you're in racing. I said, yeah. He goes, I love drive to survive. I said, Oh, has it really turned you into a formula one fan? He goes, I've never watched a race. I just like the show. Didn't think that was possible, but he's just watching, (laughs) just watching the TV show. So, Oh, I've heard many anecdotes like that of people at races that people have gone to Miami or they're going to circuit of the Americas or they went last year and people have asked them about how many races they watch. It's, oh, I don't watch the races. I just just saw a story somewhere of someone met uh, uh, Joe Guan Yu and didn't know who he was because he wasn't on last year's program. He said, "Oh, I'll find out who he is next year because I never watched the races." You know, and this <laughs> was fairly deep into the season. I don't even think this was in the U.S. race somewhere else. But yeah, I, I think that's very common, and that these quote fans and it all it all works but they will find out what happened in 2022 and watch that championship in about a two or three week span next march because they're not paying attention obviously more are paying attention now because we see it in the television ratings they're very very good they're the best they've ever been i think in america or certainly uh, the best in in many many years jason morrison writes go ahead I was just going to say, you you mentioned the the drama that has happened this year, and I know we've heard a little bit from Alex Pillow, but a story that that I read over the last few days, maybe last weekend, about him him pretty well conceding that it's been a distraction. Uh, you know, he has talked about it a little bit on the side, but he's kind of danced around it and said it is what it is, and you know, so forth. And maybe you've heard him say it a little bit more, maybe than I have, but. But to come right out and say, yeah, it's it's been a distraction. Uh, I yeah. know that we believe that it would be a distraction because it would be so for us. Uh, obviously, these drivers are somewhat superhuman in their ability to block things out. But, you know, I think that was a pretty big, uh, conf- you know, admission by, by a championship contender. I mean, again, I need- we've kind of heard it, but that's good for him. I need to go back and write down what he said to me during the rain delay, but I – slipped in a a bit of a question and I tried to make it somewhat of a softball because I didn't want to ambush him, but I also thought it was fine because I've seen him ask this question on camera multiple times and I know he's prepared for it. 
And I think he kind of conceded the same thing, that it's been far less from ideal and it's it has been difficult. Jason Morrison asks, when will we see the 2023 schedule? And hopefully, could they move Texas or Iowa to a night race to avoid heat? So I haven't heard anything as far as a release date, not even a tease like, you know, it's scheduled for this date or next week or two weeks or next month. But, uh, you know, this is the time where it could pop up in a short notice. I will say also that, you know, in the Penske administration, the uh, details of leaks just don't happen with Roger Penske's organization. You know, Roger Penske plays things very tight and close, Mm -hmm. and I don't think there's a lot of people in the know. So it hadn't had the opportunity to filter down the way maybe it would have if, you know, Executive A is talking to Reporter B, you know, in the past. And that's not to specify anybody in particular. I'm just saying Roger Penske would be making out this schedule in conjunction with a very short list of people. And just like the the greatest secret kept in history would, would be Roger Penske buying Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This obviously doesn't rise to that level, but Roger keeps things close. A lot of times we get this information from not executives, but from team owners, drivers that are, you know, sometimes kept in loop as to the way things are. And I don't know if that has changed or, you know, who knows how they were getting it. Maybe they were getting it from other reporters. But for example, I asked Jimmy Johnson a question last weekend about the schedule in regards to Lamar and some other things. And he said, I can't get anything, you know, other than we're trying of, of avoiding conflicts and things like that. But he's, he doesn't have any information in, in that regard either. Uh, I, I think it's possible. And, and I do not have any information. We have not had a, a call that says, because sometimes I will get, I may have to clam up next week because it may be said, no, I won't because our conference calls are on Wednesday. So I wouldn't know anything before next Wednesday, but occasionally we would hear, hey, this is on the the pre-race format and Mark Miles is going to come on and he's going to unveil the schedule. So I have no idea if that's planned for Portland or Laguna Seca. I think ideally they would do that one of those two weekends. If that does not happen, to me, that means that either they've hit a little bit of a snag or negotiations aren't going smoothly. And I, I think the only one that has the risk of not going smoothly would be Texas. You know, the parties have been very open, especially from the IndyCar side, have said, uh, what we're doing here ain't working. It's going to have to be changed. And if SMI pushes back and says, sorry, take it or leave it, then there's going to be an impasse. And IndyCar is going to have to decide if the status quo is good enough. I have to think SMI is going to be open for that conversation, especially if Penske is willing to take on some of the load. You know, their answer is probably going to be, you know, fine. If you want to promote it, you promote it. Uh, And if we don't have to spend any money on promotion, so that could go one of two ways. It could be SMI saying you promote it, IndyCar saying fine, or IndyCar saying, no, we're requiring a certain amount of spend for promotion in these. And then that's where things could get tricky. So, That's why I'm not as 100% confident that we're going to have a full schedule out by next weekend or something like that. The only thing I would say different, I mean, as because the 
the thought process goes to Iowa Speedway and how Penske Entertainment handled Iowa Speedway versus maybe another venue. And keep in mind that Iowa Speedway, very limited on staff. They didn't have much staff to even do the project. So it was basically a Penske Entertainment group that went into Iowa and worked. Yes. Texas Motor Speedway has a staff. They have a process at which they do things. They have, I mean, they may turn over aspects of the of the promotion but they have a staff you'd like to use their resources yes and they know their market so yeah that's the hope which in some ways makes it more complicated yeah as you speak to it iowa was very simple it was a track rental there's no staff there the staff there were indycar employees that were going back and forth coming home to indianapolis on weekends and spending the week in des moines Different situation as it should be in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Also, a major, major market that is not easy to figure out how to promote. You can't just say promote and get it done. You got to promote the right way because that spend doesn't go very far in a market like Dallas-Fort Worth. Radio and TV commercials, billboards are going to be a lot more expensive than they are in Des Moines, Iowa, and different places around the Midwest. So that's why I say this could simply be complicated. And all that said, there might already be a deal signed that that we don't know about. Um, But keep an eye on that. Is there a backup plan? I've heard some rumblings that maybe we might see some more activity at Milwaukee next year. Maybe a truck race. Uh, If that happens, could IndyCar combine with a truck race? Whether IndyCar is going to Milwaukee or not next year, and I have no indication that they are. Everything I'd been hearing was, you know, we're interested, we're talking, but it's maybe down the road in 24 or so. But if indeed Milwaukee adds something more than just an ARCA race, uh, I think that bodes well that the facility is getting healthy and, you know, even if it's not a combination effort, there's something there. And to the point of could they move Texas or Iowa to a night race to avoid heat? Well, Texas was in March this year, so there wasn't a problem with heat. Uh, I mentioned last week there were some Twitter guesstimations. And, oh, by the way, we said there was a an announcement for Texas Motor Speedway the next day. It was, what, the concert or something like that for the NASCAR race. It was another one of those, like we've talked about before. Some press releases are newsworthy. Some are not newsworthy. This one, yes, it's nice, but it, it wasn't big news. Um, but the all-star race is going to not be at Texas, I believe, next year. So do they have two cup races? And if they have a second one, when is it going to be? That could impact the IndyCar race. They're not going to let the IndyCar race, I wouldn't think, be three weeks before the cup race. They're going to want at least a month. They might even want six weeks. So that could be another snag. And and maybe they haven't got the date finalized as far as the cup schedule. I don't think it's expected until at least sometime we get into September as well. And for a night race, you can do a night race, but here's just the choice that needs to be made. If you want it to be on network television, it's probably going to have to be in the daytime. Maybe you could do a time buy like they did with Texas Motor Speedway a few years ago. Not talking about the COVID year. I don't know what the situation was there. But do you remember whatever, 10 years or so ago, I think Texas Motor Speedway bought the time to be on ABC. I think that was an ABC race on a Saturday night. And it turns out the ratings weren't really any better than they were on – I'm sorry, they bought – 
yeah, they bought the time to be on Saturday night and the ratings weren't really any better than the Sunday and so forth. So it, it wasn't seen as a good value, but it's tough to get on network at night. I think it depends on what you can get in front of it. Um, so the reason I think that the gateway race was at 5.30 scheduled local rather than 8.30 was probably because of the opportunity to go right after the Xfinity race and have a, a pretty good lead in. Because whether you went at 5.30 or 8, you weren't getting on NBC. It was going to be on USA. And I think the feeling was, and I would agree with that. Now, you may disagree and decide that's the wrong path because it's more important for the show. But you were probably going to get an extra 200 plus thousand viewers by going, if not more, after the Xfinity race at 5.30 than going standalone on your own at 8 o'clock. Does that make sense? It does. And I agree with you. Yeah. And, uh, and we ended up racing benefit, after 8 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, the unintended consequence was uh, we had time during the evening with the rain, with the weather handling as it did uh, to get that race in in spite of a two hour and 15 minute delay. And we weren't running at 1230 at uh, night, you know, in fact, true. I looked up when, when it looked like we were going to go back and it felt like we had been on hold for a long period of time. And it was like five after nine local time. I was like, this is great. I mean, it actually worked out really well. That's a good point. And, and it wasn't like we all felt like we were there. It had been a bit of a long day because people got there early in the day. But it wasn't like we left the track at 11 p.m. local time or anything like that. I'd love to see that as a night race. I think it would be a, a better race. I, My ideal world is NASCAR is racing somewhere at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, whether it be Xfinity. And Xfinity is still a good lead-in. It's, it's consistently a little over a million people on cable. So that's good. And, and that helps. And this audience was, I think, they said it was something like 590,000. It was up a pretty good chunk from what it was at a similar time slot last year on NBCSN. It was the highest rated gateway race that we've seen. So it went up. You know, we're always greedy. We're always hoping for more. I don't know how much of the rain delay went into that rating, but I think they probably broke it up in two a little bit so that the number you saw was probably the first two and a half hours or so. And then I think I saw something that showed another number just slightly less than 400,000 that included the two hour rain delay plus the really entertaining final 40 laps or so uh, of that race. So I I'm hoping I'd love there to be a true night race next year. That'd be something to really promote. Well, you just have to pick which one it's going to be, but you're going to have to have something on USA. At least the contract says at least two races are on USA. So it'd be fantastic if one of those could be, a, a night race. Paul asks, Newgarden said IndyCar racing quality as was undercredited. Is he right? Who do you think he is referring to? F1, NASCAR, here, the UK, also has a lot of F1 fans, but have never heard anything derogatory about IndyCar since Alonso took part in the 500. There is growing interest. I don't, I don't, it's really difficult, you know, First of all, I don't pretend to interpret what he meant or if if that came out, you know, exactly as he intended it to. But I, I would think that 
that IndyCar as a whole doesn't get enough credit for just how competitive it is. I mean, when you have Malukas and Sato competing for the race win uh, throughout the race, honestly, Sato had a good a good run, and and Grosjean was one who, if the strategy had gone a little differently, was was in a really good position. Uh, so I think the depth of the field, the number of drivers who have won races, um, is is staggering, and and I think the competition level just doesn't get enough credit. You know, Formula One gets all this credit because it's cool and it's you know it's it's high dollar and so forth. I don't think IndyCar gets that same kind of credit for being competitive and entertaining and and just diverse. I just don't. I don't know if that's what he meant, but I think that's that's the one, uh, you know, kind of re- not regret, but that's the one thing that bothers me is that these these guys are and the and the teams they put on such spectacular events. You you never know who's going to win, and it's not because it's luck of the draw because anybody could rise up on a given weekend and and uh, perform well like Malukas did over the weekend. And and I just don't know if enough people give give credit to that in mainstream sports, for example. And maybe another word is underappreciated, which, you know, some of yeah, us might, might kind of mean as the same thing. So I think the racing fan, the most of the general racing media people, even if they're NASCAR writers, uh, even if they're Formula One people, I think they appreciate IndyCar. Uh, f- from the ones that I know that aren't around, they enjoy the sport, just like the people covering IndyCar like NASCAR, like Formula One, like sports cars. They may have their preference. You know, most of us have a preference, and usually it's the sport that we're closest to and the one that we're working in. Uh, but but there is more of a rivalry within fans. And, you know, I think we all ask this sometimes when we look at some of the, the IndyCar races and how entertaining feel most of them are. Some are not as great, but most of them are really good. And we're thinking – why does the other racing series have five times the viewership? That's not right. Uh, I found this race that was, barring a rain delay, two hours long, much better and much more likely to keep my attention than this one that was three and a half hours long. Well, it's different. And and some of it's just habits and what they're used to. And I've always said, too, I, I still, I don't know how we change this, but for the casual fan when they flip on an oval race and they see a line like they did Saturday night of 26 cars, and we try to call them out, the red car, the blue car, the yellow car, but they're looking at it and they're overwhelmed. And I can't tell who's who. Uh, Which one's that? You're talking about Dixon. Which one's Dixon? I don't know who they are. Whereas a stock car is slow, easily identifiable, tide is on the hood, and I can figure out which car is Ricky Rudd. And that, that still works. And that's a little bit more difficult. Now, it's getting to be more difficult in in NASCAR. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it slid a little bit, is that when the uh, viewer tunes in from one Sunday to the next, Kyle Larson is not in the same colored car that he was last week, or whoever it is, because nobody can find one sponsor that has a $25 or $30 million budget to be a primary sponsor in the Cup Series. Just like IndyCar. IndyCar probably has more common liveries throughout an entire season the nascar does at this point that'd be an interesting um research that i'm not going to do i'm wondering how many cup cars have the same paint scheme livery for the entire year Over, i would under, take under a guess on that. that 
Huh? I take it. I take it a little deeper that maybe even have it for more than two thirds of the race because I don't think anybody has it for all of the races. There, there may not be anybody. Yeah. I, and, and the IndyCar other thing I would say is at least one. They have at least two. Immediately thinking Scott Dixon and Will Power. Oh, I saw this stat somewhere. Will Powers had the Verizon colors every race since 2010. Since 2009, I think it is. So that one's been consistent. Dixon has gone back and forth at times, but I believe he's been some form of PNC Bank for every race again this year. David Malukas has been the same. Granted, it's his family's company, um, but there are probably a few in IndyCar. So, yeah. Okay, got off on a tangent. For, uh, Formula One, I actually struggle when you get teammates, and I can't tell the teammates apart. I'll know, I'll know that the Alpine car, but it it takes me. The camera needs to stay there a few minutes for me to know which Alpine car that is. Yeah, you you got to see the uh, the top of the roll hoop. The quote number two driver, I believe, is yellow, and then the number one driver. But then there are some teams where it's not clear. They they say, well, we don't have a number two driver. So then you've just got to remember which one is yellow and which one is. The, the darker color, but they do stay the same. We can't argue about that. They do have the same liveries every single week throughout a season. All right, we've got a lot more we got to get to. So we're going to pick up the pace just a little bit. We're going to get to more about David Malukas, some quotes that he had over the weekend about his future. I talked with him. Others talked to him, got a slightly different answer. So we'll compare them and talk more, including another McLaren signing. Need to get to that coming up in just a moment. It's Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hi, this is David Malukas, and you're listening to Trackside. So we'll get back to David Malukas. I missed this uh, Twitter question as well from Shane Delahunt. He says, I'm not sure if I missed it, but what was the driver team conclusion of the Waiuli tire compound at Nashville? Will they be used again this year on the two remaining road courses? Um, so I'll answer that because I, I don't know how many people you talk to. So on and off the record, the response was very positive. So I sometimes have people tell me different things that they wouldn't say on television. And, you know, and in all honesty, there was a little bit of concern coming in, not because no one, not because someone doesn't trust Firestone, but just the thought was, well, that seems really hard to put a different kind of compound in the tire. And yes, it was only the sidewall. But as I talked to some people, no, that's really a big deal because that impacts the setup of the car and the spring rate and many other things that I do not understand. So that is not an insignificant part of the tire. So to just assume that that was going to behave the same way, it was, yeah, we're probably going to run these a little bit more in the first session. So all throughout the weekend, it was, yeah, they seem to be behaving the same. It's all fine. And I, I believe they do have the confidence to move forward with this. They will not be used again this year unless something has drastically changed. But I was told they're not going to be used because they don't have enough in stock. So this was just kind of the the test run. If all goes well, they will work to ramp up production. Uh, and we I don't know if it's going to be in time to see it all for next year. Maybe it's certain weekends again next year. But it's going to be a process, and the goal is that that will become the alternate tire for a couple of reasons. It's made from – oh, I, I don't have the talking points in front of me, but I, I know the number one thing is 
it reduces the carbon footprint because you're not shipping this in from Asia. You're shipping it from New Mexico and Arizona and Mexico. So already you've got a smaller carbon footprint just on the shipping materials, and it takes about 50% less water. So those are the two things that, that come to mind. And Firestone is going to be in a position where in Bridgestone, where they could just have their own farm and basically grow their rubber out in the Waiuli farm in uh, the southwest part of the United States. So yeah, there remember Fire, Firestone's got a big initiative to be uh, uh, carbon uh, carbon neutral by 2050. So it's a it's a big Bridgestone initiative that. Uh, this is included with. Yep. So I probably should mention the McLaren news. They did sign another driver, but no, there's not. Although this driver has, he was announced a signing with another team two days ago. So there's a common theme. Renee Rast has signed with McLaren for one of their two Formula E seats. So there you go. They've at least got one. We don't know if Felix Rosenquist is going to be the other. I just read a couple of days ago that Renee Rast was signed as a factory driver with BMW. There was no mention of that in this, but I presume they feel like he can do both of those programs because I've not seen any pushback from anyone after the McLaren announcement today as well. Uh, and it's undetermined whether he's going to drive in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship or in WEC, or I guess he could have even, and, and maybe, maybe here's the connection. Uh, what manufacturer, do a quick Google there. What manufacturer does McLaren have for Formula E? So maybe they are a BMW team and maybe that's what he's doing and it all kind of goes along. But Renee Rast is very, very good. He's a three-time DTM champ. That's the series that, that Robbie Wickens was in. He's won uh, the Rolex 24 in class. He's won Spa. I don't know if he's won Le Mans or not. But, but he, he's really, really good. So there at least is one driver that they found for Formula E. I don't have any new update on where Felix Rosenquist stands. I, I still think this, though. Even the ones that we think are set for next year, you just never know in this environment. So nothing is 100% at this point. So now let's get to David Malukas. Uh, who we have talked about and others have talked about, what's his future? We all have assumed that Dale Coyne signed him with some type of an option for a second year. That's generally the way it works with young drivers. Could be that both have an option. It's mutual, and they both have, both have to agree on it, which would make him a free agent. Or it could be, which is normally the case with a young driver, or often the case, I guess I would say, that it is a team option. It's hardly ever going to be just a driver option for a first-year driver. Dale Coyne has said he wants him back. I talked to David, I guess it was on Friday morning, and I was kind of walking as I chatted with him, so I, I wasn't able to write it down. But the, the essence was, I think this is where I'm going to be next year, but it's not done yet, and we're still kind of talking. And then I saw... I think Nathan Brown wrote this in the Indianapolis Star, and I went and just found the story a moment ago, and of course it went away um, after I had it saved on my iPad. But his quote was uh, essentially, yeah, I don't know. Uh, he just said, there are things I can't say, and if you want to 
chat for a moment. I'll see if I can pull this story up one more time to get the direct quote. Well, it's it's you know I I think you'd have to put the sixty uh, percent on Dale Coin, but yeah, I haven't been willing to give it more than more than sixty sixty five percent. I've just kind of felt like you know there were still too many balls in the air, too many too many still unsettled positions. Although you know it seemed like you know this was his best place, and he's done really well there. It's been a good year for him. They've gotten better, you know, as the season's gone on. They've literally been, you know, making great progress on the ovals, and and I think since Indianapolis, he didn't have any complaints team wise or 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 otherwise. So, you know, I don't think it's about the money for him. I think it'd be about joining a better team. Uh, or at least a more consistent team. But Dale Coyne's done really well for him, as it has for a lot of drivers. Should he ask Romain Grosjean if he had yeah, a do-over? I agree. I mean, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Sometimes a team's car, environment, atmosphere fits you better. This applies to any sport. But Romain Grosjean is about the same place in points as he was last year. And he didn't do the double point Indy 500 or all but one of the other ovals. He was better. He was more of a factor last year with that team. Dale Coyne Racing is pretty good. Now, if Chip Ganassi Racing offers him a contract and he's available to go, David Malukas is going to go. And then if Penske offers him a contract after that, he's going to go to Penske. You've heard the way he speaks uh, in reverence, and, and he did that in the, the press conference again on Saturday night. If people have referenced the quotes, when he got up to third, you know, Poncho said, they're the, they're the leaders, go get them. And he looks up and says, oh, my God, there's two Penske's. I'm behind only two Penske's. And I remember him telling me, so as part of his scholarship uh, for finishing second in Indy Lights last year, he got a series-funded test. And since now Roger Penske – and Penske Entertainment own the series. If we're going to have to put somebody in a test, you might as well put them in a Penske car, one of our cars. So he and um, uh, Kyle Kirkwood got a chance to test Penske cars last year. And, you know, David was, oh, I need a picture. I need a picture. I'm in a Penske car. It may never happen again, but I spent today in a Penske car. And that's the way, you know, most young guys that are willing to be honest. And that's one of the things that we like about David. Kurt, most 19, 20, 21-year-olds are too cool for school. No matter what the sport is, and we want to show that we're tough, and I get that, been there, done that, don't want to show too much exuberance. David Malukas is raw, and he's pure. He's telling you what he thinks, and he's just giddy sometimes. I I couldn't have said that better. In fact, of all the descriptions you've delivered over the years, I think that was perfect. I'm sitting here trying to think, how do I say what what David is, and he is not too cool for school. That is exactly who David is. He was goofy at media day. He was, and I mean that in a very flattering way. He was raw and said silly things because he just, I mean, he wasn't, it wasn't act. It wasn't like I'm trying to be silly. I'm still 19 or 20 years old. <laughs> and he just said some funny things that made guys who have been covering this sport for a long time just laugh because it was refreshing. And, uh, you know, Joseph was like that at one point and there have been others, but there haven't been a lot of others. And, uh, that's why we I like, can't recall any of them that were that, that, that spoke quite in that way, you know, that, that really went to 
just showing how young and happy they were to be there. Maybe I'm forgetting it. We need like a mashup of his uh, victory lane interviews in Indy lights last year. Those were just stream of conscious thoughts with, with Katie Kyle. <laughs> and those were really good last year on Peacock, by the way, here's his quote uh, that I found in the Indy star. Oh, there's some interesting things, but I'm not sure how much I can say right now. Malukas said Friday evening after qualifying about his future. Right now, the arrows point to staying with Dale Coin Racing for another year, which I'd also really like. I feel like in this seat, we've gotten so much better every single race. I feel like a whole other season. We'd be that much better. But there are still different options here and there, but a lot of it is hush-hush. So we cannot put him down for Dale Coin Racing. Dale Coin Racing might even have a, a valid contract with him, but he clearly is still holding out hope that there is an entree to somewhere else, and the somewhere else would have to be, well, I don't even know if it would have to be. I think it's possible that something changes at some other teams as well. Uh, there, there might even be some other prominent teams. I have a in mind where there potentially could be openings. Maybe it's even three if we started thinking about it. So... We thought the silly season was over a couple of months ago. We think it's coming to a close now. It's possible it stays status quo, but I think there is a decent chance that there is one more happening going on beyond just David Malukas. Now, I don't know if Chip Ganassi is going to be interested in a buyout, as we've talked about before. You know, Maybe there's a scenario where, where Palo returns to the team. Maybe there's a scenario where Erickson moves to the 10 and they just run three cars. Maybe it's three cars and they need to find someone because Jimmy Johnson is not going to be back full-time next year. So I don't know on that regard. Would Dale Coyne be more open to an agreement to let Malukas out if his dad says, okay, I found you a pretty good replacement in Linus Lundquist to take his seat and he brings a million dollars and I'm going to continue my HMD supports, which I think he is anyway, but I'm going to continue to fund that car and I will extend the length of my partnership. That's why I think David is saying there's a lot going on that, that, and there are scenarios that I'm not even thinking of, but if they really want him out, I think his dad could offer an option that works for both sides Agreed. if he's willing to pay for it. Totally agreed, and I've thought that David's dad is is more the uh, the hinge point in this than than probably David's driving career. So it's an interesting scenario, and a, and that's why it's complicated. Yep. Okay. Uh, we'll get into what we've missed and more coming up in just a moment. I think there are quite a few things we've missed. Trackside ninety three five one zero seven five. The fan. This is Alex Palou, and you're listening to Trackside. Just got a text that our friend Bob Jenkins' mural, uh, you maybe heard me mention that six months or so ago, that some friends were putting together a mural in his hometown of Liberty, Indiana. That is going to be dedicated on what would have been Bob's birthday, September 4th at 2 p.m. So that'll work out. I think the IndyCar race in Portland that day would start the fourth is Sunday, isn't it? I think so. Uh, would start around three o'clock or so. Let me make sure I have those dates correct. That is, that's a Sunday. So two o'clock 
in Liberty. Uh, you'll probably see some things on social media about that if uh, you are in the area. Liberty's what, over kind of near Richmond in that area, east side of the state. Also, I've seen several times today through social media that today is the two-year anniversary of the strangest Indy 500 ever, which I think I have mostly successfully, the, the pre-race, I have blocked from my mind. I remember very little about that because it was so weird. Yeah, I, I remember it because I was able to uh, watch from the grandstands for more than I normally am able to. And I just thought I got time to get back and forth if need be. And so I True. went in the stands for a little bit and enjoyed it. Okay, a few, few things that we've missed here as well. We need to mention Takuma Sato and Dale Coyne Racing as a whole for what they did. It wasn't just the kid that was good. The team was good. That's right. That's right. Two top five finishes for that, that squad on uh, on Saturday night. And Takuma led 22 laps, and he was a little bit out of sequence, but he was going to be in contention for a top six or seven finish regardless of what, you know, unless the race just went haywire on us. I think also it worth, almost did. It almost did. Also worth mentioning Devlin D. Francesco. He might have had one of his most, if not most, positive uh, weekend. He qualified 10th, started 9th after the penalty to Grosjean, was on the lead lap most of the race. He finished in 12th, so he had his best start and his best finish for the weekend. On the other side of things, oh, boy, what a rough weekend it was for Ed Carpenter Racing. You know, VK probably feels good that there was an electrical problem because car was was not quick in qualifying. Maybe they would have found something in the race. Ed Carpenter didn't find a whole lot more speed in the race. Connor was the best of them for a while, and then he had an electrical problem. That, but I think he was already maybe a lap down at that point. Um, anything else? I don't know that we were able to get this on the broadcast. The reason that Pagano finished three laps down is right after the restart, after the rain delay. He had a cut tire. Uh, so he maybe he had fresher tires and he might have been able to move forward, but he had to make a pit stop. And that's why he lost two more laps, because he did an extra pit stop at that point. We'll get to Indy Lights next week and talk about their their championship, which is just about done. But Matt Brabham won the race on Saturday. So that was really, really good to see as well. Oh, Will Power. Oh, yeah. 67 pulls. Yeah, we should have spent a little time there, but uh, I think when he gets to 68, it might be that later this year we can we can uh, really camp, or maybe that's an off season. We'll just talk about the relevance yeah. and significance of how he got there and so forth. It's a big, big, big number. Well, I'm hoping most of our listeners also have Peacock. I really enjoyed that interview with Will after he won the poll. Lots of emotion. It was just a really, really big moment. And uh, he was able to kind of let out some of, of the significance of that to him. We're back next Tuesday night talking about Portland. Don't forget, we've got racing on road courses this weekend. The IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Lee Diffie and Calvin Fish in the booth. I'll be on pit lane with Matt Yoakum joining us this weekend from Virginia International Raceway, 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon on CNBC and Peacock, Saturday afternoon for the Michelin Pilot Challenge Race. For Josh Mullenix and Kirk Cavan, I'm Kevin Lee. Thanks for joining us on Trackside.